Um, if I can have the ushers go ahead and, and let folks in the lobby know that we're getting started, or maybe they hear me on the TVs and I'll try to look at the, the camera so they can see me looking at them. That way they'll know to come in. Um, and we can pull those doors shut. That'd be great. Thank you. Well, today we are beginning a series, um, a Sunday morning messages on the miracles and parables of Christ. If you've been attending our church for a while, um, you probably have a mixture both of uh, relief because we've now finished our series on the book of 1 Samuel for about, after about 11 months or so. And, but maybe you have a little bit, like me, a little bit of sadness as well because I've gotten to know the, the character of those people in the book of Samuel and Saul and David and God and gotten to know us. And so there's a little bit of sadness. It's hard to say goodbye to old friends. Um, we've gotten to know so, so well, but and then we don't want to leave them behind. I've, we've learned a lot about God and how he works, and we've learned about ourselves, but we've also learned through the book of Samuel, that really the main theme of the book of Samuel was, was, was looking for the king, that we were looking for who would be God's man on earth, who would be God's man to, to rescue, to redeem God's people, to lead God's people, to, to usher in God's kingdom ultimately, and we, we saw in the book of Samuel that that wasn't David, although he was the forerunner. And, and, and probably the most important forerunner in the kingdom, yet it wasn't him. And so we were looking for the ultimate king, and so we looked forward to Jesus almost every message in Samuel, deliberately so. Now, what we want to do, since we've been looking for Jesus for about 11 months, not that he was lost or we couldn't find him, but that we were looking for our needs, seeing our need for Jesus. Now, we want to behold Jesus. We want to behold the true king. We want to behold the king in his kingdom. We want to see what does the king look like? Who is this king? How does this king interact with his subjects, his servants? How does this king rule and reign? What does his reign look like? What does kingdom authority look like? What does this king have to say to us? And what does he require from us? And so we are going to be going through different miracles and parables looking to see King Jesus and his kingdom reign and rule. And the theme, really, of this series will will be just that, seeing the king and his kingdom through the miracles and parables in the New Testament. You know, if I wanted you to to get to know someone, you you couldn't just hear third-hand about them. Maybe you, you have a celebrity pastor or an actor that you follow. You listen to the pastor's messages online, and that's great. But there's no real relationship there. They don't know what's going on in your lives, and so their ability to speak into your life is only minimal. Maybe you, maybe you have a favorite actor that you like to watch in movies, but um, no matter how many movies you see of them, it doesn't mean you know them. It doesn't mean you actually have a relationship with them. If you want to get to know a, a, a person truly, at least to begin with, you need to be around them. You need to observe them to understand who they are, what they do, how they act, why they act, who they interact with, what they talk about a lot. If you want to know a person, you've got to be around them and have dialogue and understand and hear and observe. And, you know, if you say um, to your spouse, honey, I would love to know you, but I just don't want to be around you. I don't think they would believe you, and you also wouldn't really get to know them. You know, or maybe you have a certain someone that you are wanting to pursue. If you're watching them from afar, that's just creepy, okay? You don't remain there. You don't know them. Um, You have to have some kind of dialogue, relationship with them. Now, 
there is a danger of only looking at the miracles and parables of Christ without the context of those miracles and parables. There's a danger of it, of it really just being only sensationalism. Now, we are going to intentionally, in case you're concerned, deliberately look at the context each and every week of those parables, those miracles, so that we see Jesus in context. But we also want to let those miracles and parables reveal who he is, who does he come to, what does he do, why does he do it, so that we can know Jesus through his parables and miracles. So if I were going to ask you to turn your Bible to the first parable, or I'm sorry, the first miracle of Jesus, maybe you would turn, anybody have any ideas? Where would you turn? First, first miracle of Jesus. What's the first miracle of Jesus? Go ahead. Say, say it loudest what you think it is. Water into wine. And you might be right in one sense. But you know what? I would say that actually we, we probably should never look at that as the first miracle. Jesus turning the water into wine. And maybe it was the first public miracle in his public ministry. Yes, that would be accurate. I, I think though really that the first miracle of Christ where we need to begin to see who Jesus is. Who is this Jesus? Why did he come? What does he do? Who does he come to? How do we know him? I think we have to look back to the very first miracle that Jesus performed, and that's really the miracle of the incarnation. What is incarnation? It's the fancy word for saying infleshing, carne, a Latin word meaning flesh. So the infleshing of Jesus. So really, I want us to think differently about the miracles of Jesus and think back the very first miracle, really the biggest miracle of all, of all eternity. That's a bold claim. The biggest miracle of all eternity Bigger than the creation was that Jesus entered into creation, that God, the infinite one, became man and yet lost nothing of his Godhead, nothing of his deity. The biggest miracle that I want us to begin with, and I think appropriately we begin the series on who is Jesus, why does he come, who does he come to, how do we get to know him, what's his character and nature like? Well, I think we need to delve into the very first miracle of Jesus in the incarnation of Jesus, the biggest miracle ever performed. And so let's read a little snapshot of that from, of 1 John. Now I want to ask you to do me a favor if, if, before we start reading 1 John. I'm going to ask you not to check out. Whenever I hear um, a story that I've heard thousands of times, maybe you've heard First John read to you every Christmas, and so you just kind of, your eyes glaze over, and you're like, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and you can kind of glaze over, and you can fail to let those words affect you. I'm going to ask you not to do that. I'm going to ask you to, to, to stop and, and, and act as if this is the very first time you've, you've heard and seen these words, because they're really miraculous. So let's read God's Word together with us to hear Him speaking to us and revealing Himself through his word for us personally. First John, I mean, sorry, John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and through him, without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about that light that all might believe through him. 
He was not that light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we confess that we are needy, that we need you to reveal yourself to us, Lord, that where our hearts and our minds have been dull, would you awaken us? Where these words of your word that we read have become routine, we ask that you would explode our minds with an understanding of who you really are. May we see you. May we behold you. May we know you through your word. Would you affect us this morning? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come even now and just illuminate our minds and open up our hearts that we might respond to you in faith in light of who you are. God, be with me as I speak and with all of us as we hear. May we give attention to you speaking through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, at the opening of the book of John, John is doing something here. He's setting the stage. Like any good author, he's setting the stage. He's giving you the context for this miracle of the, the incarnation, the infleshing of Jesus. He's, he's setting the stage. He's telling you who the main characters are. He is explaining the background to this great miracle of the infleshing, the incarnation of Jesus. And he's setting up the context for it. The biblical authors, Matthew and Luke, they give us the specific details about how did Jesus come. We're not going to look at that specifically, but we're looking about who is this Jesus who came in the flesh? And why did he come in the flesh? And, and I would say that perhaps the most important context for the miracle of the incarnation is, is the one in which Jesus came into the world to begin with. And we're going to see a few things in this passage. We're going to see five things, really, in this passage we're going to look at. We're going to see that some some ways that Jesus came. Why did he come? And we're going to see that the purpose of his coming was for us to respond to him. And we see that in the very beginning that Jesus has always existed, that he's the word of God. And we see that he came to reveal God to humanity. We see that he came to make God known so that we might receive him, so we might become sons of God. And really the main thing we're going to look at, if you're going to condense it all down to one sentence, you could really just say, Jesus, the eternal word of God. Think about that for a moment. Jesus, who is the eternal word of God, he came so that we might become children of God. Let that sink in for a moment. 
I know this sounds routine. I know if you've been a Christian for a while, you think, no big deal, right? Think about the big deal it is that Jesus, the eternal word of God, came to reveal God so we might become children of God. I was reading recently, I know it sounds like boring reading, it probably is, I have this odd desire to read facts and things like that and I enjoy them and so I was reading recently about the U.S. Patent Office, that's a fairly boring thing, right? But I was reading about the U.S. Patent Office and, and the Patent Act, I think it was of 1793 or something like that and, and they set this up to protect the rights of ownership of people who came up with an invention or a product or an author who might write something. And so the patent office and patents were created to protect ownership. And in order to secure a patent, it had to be shown that discovery or invention doesn't exist, didn't exist before, hadn't been used before. And, and the whole reason behind that is because patents were developed because there is a kind of universal recognition when somebody create something. They have a right of ownership to it. I used to work for um, a company that was big on something called intellectual property. They created computer programs, computer games actually, and, um, and, and that was big intellectual property. If they created a game for $100 million, um, they didn't want just everybody to go and use it and then not make any money off it because there was a right of ownership because they had created it. So when we read the, the opening of John you see something very important, a very important statement that John is making at the very beginning. He's saying something about who Jesus is, who God is, and who we are, right? He's saying something ultimately about ownership, really. He's saying that Jesus, the word, the self-revelation of God, the one who declares God to us, he is the one and only creator of all things. There's nothing that was not made through him. He made everything. What does that imply? What does that mean? It means he is our creator. He owns us. He has a right to us. Do you think of yourself that way? You might kind of bristle against that. But I would say don't bristle. It's a great privilege to be owned by the creator. The first thing that we see at the very outset is that the truth that John wants to drive home is I think the truth we need to see at the very outset of the miracles and parables of Christ is the most important thing is this is not just some show that we see throughout the New Testament. We see really the outworking of the fact that the Word is our creator. That's the first thing we see. The Word is our creator. That's the first foundational truth that we want to look at. The Word is our Creator. Now, where do I get this from? Look down in, in, in verses 1 through 3, if you will. Look down in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, look along with somebody with you, and we may have that. Oh, we have it on the screen for you, too. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John puts the setting here in the beginning, and if you were a, a Jewish reader... If you had never read the New Testament, this is the first time you picked up the New Testament, and any good Jew in that day, in John's day, they would have been familiar with the Old Testament, would have read it forwards and backwards, and so many times that it became wrote to them, a good Jew, a Jewish reader would recognize the language of creation when it says in the beginning. Where else have we seen that? Anybody? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. Here we see, in the beginning was the Word, and he made all things. Same kind of language. And then, you know, like my children know, if I, if I read them a certain phrase, if I said, and 
I'll look at them in a second here. If I, if I told them something like the line, you're living a fantasy. There's no Easter bunny. There's no tooth fairy. There's no queen of England. Um, they would instantly know um, and think of a movie. What's the name of the movie? Megamind. Megamind, exactly. Um, or, and if you haven't seen it and you've got kids, you, you know, go and see it with your kids. But in, in my generation, it might have been a line that maybe you would be familiar with too. If I, if I said the line, stop rhyming and I mean it, you might say another line after that. What might you say? Anybody want a peanut? Because you know that's from the movie The Princess Bride. And you know, maybe older readers or older people in our congregation wouldn't recognize either one of those things and think that's completely irrelevant. But you know, if I said, go ahead, punk, they'd probably finish with make my day. Um, and, you know, those... This would, these, these words in, in, first, in, in John 1 would have been so familiar to Jewish readers, and several points in the first chapter of John would have been like that. They would have called to mind what they were ultimately familiar with. This is God, the creator. But John is using a different word that they would have caused them to pause for a moment and think about, and he he uses to describe Jesus this, this different word that he doesn't use elsewhere in the gospel because he wants to set the context for all the other words he uses, son of man, son of God. He wants to set the context that Jesus is the word of God, the very self-revelation of God, the very self-expression of God. This word, though, was not just a vocalization. He was a manifestation, a self-expression in person, God in three persons, This is God, very God, the Son of God, alongside God in the beginning, co-eternal with God, alongside God at the start, co-equal to God. But this word, at the same time as being God, was a unique person in the Godhead. And so the word John reveals, we read further, look down in verses 14 and 17, is nothing other than Jesus himself. How do I know that? Because he talks about Jesus being revealed as the fullness, really. In verse 3, John tells us not only is Jesus the self-revelation, the very expression of God, the, the Word of God, He's the Creator. You know, if you think about that, what would, what would it call to mind for the early Jewish readers? Would it call to mind that, that God, Jesus, is all-powerful, that He had a, a creative activity at the very beginning, that Jesus not only is a Creator, but He is, he is the one through whom He speaks and, and has powerful Word, creates things. And in Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, in Amos, we see the word is active in Revelation. The word reveals God. So maybe the Old Testament reader would have thought, okay, the word is the creator. The word is also the revealer of God. But, but word in the Old Testament is also used for different things. The word is the one who rescues. I will send my word and save my people. In Psalm 107, 20, in Isaiah 55, the word is active in deliverance. In Isaiah, it's the word of the Lord that comes to Isaiah. In Isaiah 55 and Psalms 29, God's word brings deliverance and judgment. Psalm 107, God sends forth his word and heals them and rescues them from their grave. Do you get the picture of what would have been brought to mind if you're a Jewish reader? This aspect of him as creator, as revealer, as deliverer and healer. That's what we're meant to see in this miracle of the incarnation. The word is the very agent of creation, the originator of everything that existed. Sometimes I ask my kids a question from the Westminster um, the shorter catechism, I, I ask them, who made everything? They know the answer is God. And then I maybe ask it a different way and say, what did God make? They know the answer is God made everything. But when we say God, be more precise to say Jesus, the Word of God. 
made everything. Colossians 1, 16, it tells us, it says, For by him all things were created, everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What does that mean to us? It means that he, the creator, has authority over everything. What does that mean for us? It means that we should look to the creator in confidence, knowing that he does have authority over everything. Nothing is outside of his purview. Nothing is outside of his rule and his sovereign reign. That's the Jesus who came to incarnate himself in human flesh. It's important for us to see that. It's important for our faith. The beginning of Hebrews tells us really the same thing as John 1. It says in Hebrews 1, 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, and in exact language, it, it reads more stiltingly like that. It says, in these last days, he's spoken to us by son. Not through his son, but he's spoken to us. Jesus is the speaking to us in these last days. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. I want you to see that the effect of this truth that he's the creator of all things is meant to have on us is he's the heir of all things as well. And if you have placed your faith in him, he, as the heir of all things, is able to give all things. He's the owner of all. He created the world. It says, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Are you lacking confidence and trust in God? Do not, because Jesus came as the ruler of all so that you might experience his rule and his reign as he has authority over all. He gives that same benefits to all who are in him. That should build your confidence in seeing who this Jesus really is. We can also see that Jesus has a right to our lives. Maybe you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, and I want to encourage you, think about for a moment that he owns you, that he's your creator, that you have responsibility to him. Whether you acknowledge him or not is irrelevant. Whether you rebel against him or not doesn't change the truth of the fact that he owns you. He's your creator. The question is only, will we respond to him as he can be reconciled to him, or will we remain rebels against him? Will we bow to his authority? Christian, will you bow to his authority, or will you try to assert your own authority? How you answer those questions is of utmost importance in this miracle of the Jesus, the God-man, becoming flesh. When you're talking to somebody who doesn't believe in God, as Steve and Laura were, This issue is of utmost importance. You need to know this truth. It's of utmost importance. Who Jesus is, is key. If you're talking to an unbeliever, an atheist, they they will say, well, what's good for you is good for you, but that's not good for me. And you say, well, you know what? I understand that's your perspective, but it doesn't change the fact that there is a creator and we all must give account to him. And I can't just back away and stop talking to you. I'll be kind. I'll be your friend. I'll love you, irrespective of whether you ever respond or not. But I cannot stop telling you the truth because I love you too much to stop because we have an obligation to our creator. There's only one way that we can be reconciled to him. The question for us is, are we living, do we submit to him as our creator? Are we living by his commands, knowing that he has our best in mind, that he knows what's best for us. Are we, are we submitting to him? Are we in relationship with him? Or are we foolishly acting like he has no right to us? Do we think that God saved us just to be out on our own? That's not it at all. If we recognize Jesus' creator can enable us to trust him, not just for salvation, but for everyday life. And, and the question that you have to ask us is, do, are we really affected by him as creator? Do we really believe he's a creator? If so, then I would submit 
it will build our faith in the fact that he is sovereign. He's overall. He owns all things. He holds all things. He's able to give all things. He is strong. Are you lacking faith this morning? Look up and see your creator who came down to meet you. He's, Jesus didn't come to manipulate us, to, to deceive us. He, he's not an ancient snake oil salesman trying to get us to buy his merchandise for his profit. No, really the second thing that we're going to see from the scripture is that he is... The word is, he came to give us light and life. He is light and life, and he came to give us light and life. The word came to give us light and life. We can see that in verses four through nine. If you're reading, first John, if you're reading John, this first chapter in the setting of creation, and you're a Jew, and you're reading it for the first time, the very first time of this book, you would immediately see, he's talking about creation, so he says he gave light and life, and, and the light came into the darkness, the darkness didn't know it. You would immediately think, okay, wait a minute. That means that, that Jesus is the, is the light of creation, he created the physical light of creation. If you look in, in Genesis, there's this time when the sun and the stars are not yet, and yet there's light. And so you say, oh, Jesus is that light. He's physically the light of the world. You look in Revelation, you can see that in the end, we won't have any need for the sun because why? The light will just emanate from God himself. He has no need for the created thing because he, the creator, is light. And so there's one aspect of that that John means here for us to see is that, and that's good to see. He also means that he's life. And so you have the picture in Genesis 1, this created order where Jesus is the one who breathed life into Adam. Now, if you remember, we went through the book of Acts about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago by the time we went through that verse, where there's this point in the book of Acts where Jesus turns to his disciples and he, he breathes on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. That's a, that's a picture of the new life. Jesus is the life, so we're meant to see that. Jesus is not only physical life, but he's also the life of the Holy Spirit. But we see more than that. If you keep reading through the book of John, not only are we meant to be filled with gratitude and faith looking to Jesus to give us life, but to look to Jesus to light our way as well. Imagine for a moment if this room was completely dark and it was nighttime. These, these lights here, what, these windows were eventually going to cover up with curtains to help the sound and the like and also to help when we show videos so you can see the screens. But right now they're not covered up, so it would have to be nighttime. So imagine it was night and all the lights were off in this room and all of you were here together and, and suddenly there was some emergency and you wanted to get out. You would probably want what? Light. You'd probably want to see the way out so you wouldn't trip and run into each other and there wouldn't be mass chaos. Or maybe for those of you who are fans of J.R.R. Tolkien and the series The Lord of the Rings, if you read through those books, you'd be familiar with a, a setting in, in the mines of Moria underneath these this misty mountains they're going and these dark settings. Now imagine you're in the mines of Moria then for all you who are Tolkien fans, and, but you're in the mines of Moria with no lights, with no torch, no way, and you have no way to see. I've been underground in a cavern before and they shut all the lights off and it's disconcertingly black when there's no light whatsoever. You know, you have no light at all and you, you know there's orcs and a balrog down there so you want to get out. You'd be grateful for a light to see your way out. There's another facet of what John means here. Not just physically light of creation but Jesus is the one who lights our way spiritually, morally in the darkness so that we see that he is the light. 
that we come to. He is the life when we're dead in darkness. He is the one who brings to life. And that's another facet of what John means here. And you can read down through in John 8, 12. It gives us that aspect. And John's a very talented author. He doesn't just give one meaning. There's, there's nuances to what he writes. You know, like a good book that you go back and read several times, you're going to see different things as you read the book of John. And we're meant to see all these different aspects of the light and life. And so John 8, 12, Jesus said to them, he says, I am the light of the world. Now, is he talking about physically? Yes, but not here. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The life that he brings, the light that he brings, the illumination, the moral light, the, the moral illumination, the, the new life. He's the one that shows the way out of this dark moral darkness and decay that we live in. And doesn't that give you hope this morning, by the way? Because we're, we're living in the, in the midst of some pretty dark times, aren't we? We look around you. And you think, what is going on? Where is the hope? Look up and see Jesus, the one who came down. He is your light. He is your life. Look to him and not other things for light and life. Matthew kind of tells us the same thing, quoting Isaiah 9. Matthew 4, 16, he says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Is Jesus your great light this morning? They've seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. We dwell in the region and shadow of death, but let's look at the miracle of the incarnation and see that the light has dawned on us. We no longer have to be bound by the darkness and the shadows of death. He came to bring light and life. He came to make things clear. He came to bear witness. You know, some religions claim enlightenment, but they're like spotlights outside the movie theater. They seem bright until the light of day comes, and you can't even see them anymore. Jesus is that true light that shines into the world like the sun shining on a bright, clear summer day. The law and the wisdom, they gave some light. There is some truth in a lot of different religions because God has revealed his truth in many different ways, and through common revelation and creation, God's revealed his truth. There's some, but Jesus is the true light, the ultimate self-disclosure of God to man. Do you see Jesus as your light? Do you come to him as your light in life? Do you seek him for illumination? Do you seek him to make things clear? Do you seek him for moral clarity, to light your way, light your path? Do you seek him for your life? Or do you try to be self-sufficient and figure things out on your own, like often I do. Take heart, look up, see the God-man who came down to give you light and life. Thirdly, verses 10 to 13 of 1 John, of John 1 tell us that the word came so that we might become children of God. It says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him. All who did receive him, who believed in his name. He gave the right, not just the ability, not just Um, He gave the privilege, he gave the right to become children of God who were born. Now, here's something very important to note. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He came so we might become children of God, but it's something that he does in us. It's his willing that's made us children of God. If you are a child of God, and that should give you hope. He came when we become children of God. If you 
have placed your faith in God, you believe in God, you want to believe in God, you can be sure that he is the one who by his will has drawn you and made you born anew. He talks about later in John 3, if you're familiar with, you know, for God so loved the world, preceding that was his conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, you must be born again. How? Of God. You know, the fact that God sent his son into the world should tell us that we really need a savior. But we know from this context and also from our own experience, the light of the world shines on all men, but not all men acknowledge the lights. It divides the entire human race. Some will reject him. The world did not know him. It did not recognize him. Even his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. But to those who believe, who receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. There is hope there. If we believe in Jesus, the word of God, the kind of belief that trusts in him as our light and our life, then he gives you the right to become children of God. Here's what that means. No one can take away that right because God has given it to you because he's the one who has born you. Can someone else unborn you? I know that's not right English grammar. I'm aware of that. My, my wife was an English major. She would help me with my grammar. You can't be unborn, if you will. You can't be uncreated. If you have believed and placed your trust in him, let that give you assurance in this Jesus, this one who became flesh, that if you believe in him, he, God the Father has made you born in him. And he's given you a right that can never be taken away, a right that you can come as God's child when you are in need. When my child this morning, apparently she fell, I wasn't here, but she fell when she was getting out of the truck and she hit her head and she banged it and I, I carried her out in the middle of worship because um, she needed some Advil. But um, she, she comes to me, she comes to us when she's in need. She doesn't think twice about it. She hurts herself, she falls. Um, she's, she's angry sometimes at her siblings and she comes to us because she's our daughter. She doesn't second-guess that right to come to us as children. If you are second-guessing whether God wants you to come to him when you've sinned, when you've done something wrong, when there's offense, when you're hurt, when somebody has offended you, when you're angry, don't second-guess that. You have the right to become children of God. If you place your faith in him, come to him. Through Jesus, the man who became God, the God who became man. It's not ours because of the family you were born into, because we deserved it, or because we even chose God. It says not of the will of the, the flesh, the will of man, and, and there's kind of two different meanings there. It's not, not because of our choice, and not because somebody else chose it for us through some um, physical relationships, but it came about because God was at work in us. So the question really that, that all of us should be confronted with is, is, is do we believe that's who Jesus is? Do we believe that he is the God-man who came to give us light and life. And have we responded to him? Have we repented? Have we believed? Have we trusted in him? This Jesus of miracles and parables does not, does not let us be comfortable with him. He does not let us be ambiguous with him. He makes declarations all throughout his word about who he is. And he will not allow you to be neutral. You cannot be neutral about who God is. You cannot be neutral about who Jesus is. Either you believe he is who he said he is as your creator and you respond to him and have a relationship with him and he becomes your, Jesus becomes your brother, God becomes your father and you receive all that God has for you or 
You, you are a rebel, and one day you will be destined for your creator to judge you. Have you received his light and life? Have you become a child of God? There's not a greater privilege. The other questions are, do you, do you seek him as your light? Do you seek him as your life? You know, that was, I was reading about purification systems of water in different areas, different countries, and um, I have a friend in another country, and he has set up this whole system of water purification. It's really simple, but it really helps them. And, and, and it sounds silly, but um, they take used water bottles. They wash them out, these plastic water bottles that we discard, the you know, disposable water bottles. They take thousands of water bottles. They collect them. They take the labels off them. They put dirty water that's infected with parasites and all kinds of stuff from the wells in, in India. And they take these water bottles, and they set them out in the sun. And then something happens as, as all of that nasty, infected, poisonous water that's detrimental to health, that brings only death. Something happens as that water is put in these water bottles and set out in the sun. The sun shines through, illuminates the water, and the UV rays kill the germs inside these water bottles. Now, if you're ever in a place where you have nasty water, you can do that. You have to let it out for, I think, two days or so. But after two days in bright sun, it the heat and the, and the UV areas from the sun, they kill the germs. And it makes it drinkable water. It might not taste good, but it, gives it drinkable, makes it drinkable water. If you believe in him, if you have let the light of his life, if you have let him shine into the dark recesses of your heart and mind, he will make you pure. First John talks about if we walk in the light as he is in the light, that he, he purifies us. You know, don't walk in darkness, uh, but, but bring those deeds that, that you're embarrassed about. Even as a believer, that you do things that you, you know you shouldn't do, and you're embarrassed and ashamed about things and thoughts and deeds and actions. It says, don't try to hide them and act as if you're somebody that's not. Bring those things into what? The light. Into Jesus, that it might be exposed and so that he might purify you. The blood of Jesus' Son purifies you from all sins. He is the light. He is the life that brings purification. And then it's important to see Jesus is not just some distant light. It's not distant truth. He's with us. It says in verse 14, look down your Bibles. It says, and the word became what? Anybody? Read your Bibles. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, lived with us, or more accurately, tabernacled with us. And so this fourth truth about Jesus, we're looking at in these verses, the word became God in the flesh for us. This is the miracle of the incarnation, the enfleshing of Jesus. This is what this whole passage is all about. All-knowing, the eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful God humbled himself, became a man in actuality so that he might save actual humanity. He became a man in actuality so he might actually save humanity. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was born as a baby. The creator became a creature. Think about it. The one who sustained his own mother's life was sustained by the life he gave her as she nursed him. It's astounding. The creator, the giver of life, would himself become man the supreme revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus would, the fact that he became man, it means that he had to become man in order to rescue mankind because no man, no earthly king, no David could rescue, no David could save, but Jesus, the king of all, the creator of all, the rule of all, had to stoop and become man to, to rescue mankind. 
And this word for dwelt among us is important that we, we know what that word means. It's, it's the original language there. It's the word tabernacle or tented among us. And, and why is that important? Well, if, again, you're an Old Testament reader and you're reading 1 John, a lot of these things would stand out to you. You said, he, he became flesh and he tabernacled. Wait a minute, what's the tabernacle? I know what the tabernacle is. That's where we go to meet with God. Or at least where God's people of went to meet with him. We, we go to the temple now. The word became flesh and tabernacle, tented among us. What, what does that give pictures of? It's the Old Testament that was in God chose to be with his people. He commanded Moses to, to create a tabernacle, a tent. And there's this time, this awful time in Exodus 32 when, when the people disobeyed God and they, and Moses is up on the mountain receiving revelation from God, you know the story, and while he's receiving revelation, the people are down there acting as if God's not even near them, and they go and create this golden calf, and Aaron's like, whoa, I, I don't know where I came from, I just took this gold and I threw it in the fire, and out came a calf. Um, and you're like, really? And God said, I, I can't, I can't, my presence, I told you I'd tabernacle amongst the people, but I can't do that, they're, they're too sinful, they're wicked, and I can't. So Moses, go and pitch the tent outside of where my people are. And so they would have to, Moses would go outside of the people's camp to where, to meet with God. But then there comes a time in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34 where, where Moses says, if you will not be with us, then I cannot go. We must have your presence with us. And so God then moves his tabernacle, his presence in the midst of his people because Moses knows that apart from God making his presence known in the midst of his people, there is no hope. That's where atonement for sins are made. That's where God's people meet him. Jesus later in John 2, he refers to himself just in another chapter or so as the temple. And he says that in three days he'll raise himself up in three days. What is Jesus saying when he's saying he's the temporal? He's saying the same thing John's saying. He's the one who tented among us, tabernacled among us. He He is the very presence of God with us. He's where God meets man. He's the manifestation of God's presence where atonement for sins are made. He's the one through whom we receive the Spirit. He's he's made known the presence of God. He's not distant from us. He's not unrelatable. He has chosen to be amongst us, to take on frail human flesh, identify with our experience in every way like we are yet without sin. That should give you hope. He's not a distant God. He's with you. He understands you. He knows your circumstances. He knows your difficulties, your challenges. He knows what you're facing. He tabernacled among us. He reveals God to us. He's, he is the place where we meet God. He is where atonement for sins himself is made. You see, these miracles of Christ are meant to function. They're meant to function to reveal who Jesus is and, and why he came. They're meant to affirm his deity and point us to faith and hope in him. This morning, the effect of this is that you're, you're meant to have increased faith and hope that God is for you so much so that he sent his own son. That Jesus understands your weaknesses, your problems. You're like, God, where are you? Don't you see me? Don't you understand? He says, yes, I was a man. I became a, I became a baby for you. And, and, a, and impoverished, to impoverished parents. My parents couldn't even make the sacrifice for the temple, so they had to give the kind of the, the one that was okay, the, the doves when, when I was born. Jesus understood what it meant to, to not be given credit for who he was, to not be treated fairly and rightly. He knew what it was to be mistreated. He knew what it was to be abused, to be mocked, to be spit on, to be
be marginalized, to be cast out, to be ignored. Why? Because he came in the flesh and he can identify with all your fleshly temptations. Give, that should give you hope, this miracle of God incarnate. That's our hope. He can identify with our humanity in every way. He knows what it is to be weak, to be hungry, to have sorrow, to be in need, to be betrayed, to suffer, to die. You know, without the incarnation of Jesus, we have no hope, and, and Christianity just becomes another self-help religion based on the teachings of a well-intended lunatic. But that's not what it is. We have the God-man, the man, the God who became man, who became flesh. It was a drastic cure because a drastic cure was needed. The love of God the Father and God the Son is on full display in Jesus becoming flesh so that he might identify with us in every way. And and the perfect one learned perfection. He came as the final priest of God, inaugurating the new covenant through his blood that comes to the people of Jesus. He came as the final word of God, the ultimate prophet. He came to reign as the king over all, to establish his kingdom once and for all because we needed an earthly king who would not fail, but no earthly king would do. We needed a perfect earthly king, and that could only be the God-man. Now we see Jesus the king. But the human nature of Christ is necessary for Christ to offer a sacrifice for all humanity too. And what a miracle it is. He became a human so that he might offer himself as atonement, as the sacrifice making us at one with God to himself carry God's wrath and take his justice and himself take the death and punishment for sins that we deserved. In Jesus, God has affected the self-disclosure of an enabled man to behold him and to know him. I want you to think for a moment about what it means that a creator became creature. The sustainer became dependent. The infinite became finite. The immutable became changeable. The perfect had to be made perfect in his manhood. The omniscient one in his manhood increased in wisdom and learned obedience. The omnipotent one grew weary. The one who needs no sleep slept out of need. The most rich emptied himself, became poor. The one who owns everything had no place to rest his own head. The bread of life was hungry. The one on whom every soul feasts was tempted. Legitimately, he was so hungry. The fountain of water of life became thirsty. The truth was accused of lying. The healer of all who came to him became one who bore our griefs and was wounded for our transgressions. The king of kings was mocked. The just judge of all mankind was unjustly judged by man. The fountain of all blessing became a curse for us. The author of life died to take the sentence of death that stood against us. This is what the miracle of the incarnation means. It's a miracle, though, of addition, not subtraction, as as theologians would say. He he didn't cease to become fully God. In his fully godness, he also was fully man. And if he was anything less, we would have no hope. Why did he come in tabernacle? Just for the same reason why God came in tabernacle in the tent, because he wanted to draw near to us. He wants to draw near to you. He wants you to draw near to him. He wants you to meet with him. The question is, do you come to meet with him? Do you look to Jesus as your only means of atonement? 
Do you meet with God through Jesus? Do you know that He identifies with you in every way? Do you know that He knows you, that He cares when you're despondent, when your situation seems hopeless? Do you see that it is not because He came as a man? Do you see that He sympathizes with you? But not only that, He didn't sin, so He's able to help you not sin. He knows how to overcome temptations to sin because He was tempted, but He didn't sin. Do you commune with Him through prayer and the word? Do you draw near? Do you remember in times of trouble, He's with you, He'll never leave you and forsake you? Well, lastly, as, as we see, John tells us the word came to make God known to us. Look in verses 16 through 18. This is where we'll, we'll finish up in this last two verses. It says, from his fullness we have all received. Now, the words in the ESV and in many English translations say grace upon grace. But literally, if you, if you read that in the original language, and we rarely want to bring that up, but, but sometimes the English kind of grapples with things and it, it, it's not able to get the concepts. And, and here's one of those rare occasions. But if you look at it literally, it says, and from his fullness we have all received, and then the actual words are grace, anti-grace. It's not upon. Grace in contrast with grace. Grace in, replace, in replacing grace. Grace instead of grace. And then he explains it. Here's how we know that's what that means as well. It's from the context, and context is important. Whenever you look at a biblical interpretation, it's important not only to look at the, the words that are there, but the context too. So we know he means grace, anti-grace, grace in place of grace, grace instead of grace. How do we know this? Look at verse 17. He says, for, we've been given grace instead of grace, in place of grace, for the law, grace, the first grace he's talking about, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, for from his fullness we have all received grace and then another grace in place of that grace from the fullness of God. God graciously gave the law for a time so that people might relate to him and experience his forgiveness, but now we experience the full grace of God, the grace of the good news of Jesus Christ instead of the law in place of the law, he came to fulfill the law, and in place of that, he is the giver of all grace. And so now from the fullness of Jesus is, we have received God's grace, his favor. And it says, because grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus, the word of God, he's the full self-disclosure of God's grace and truth. He himself gives mercy and grace. Are you looking to him for grace? Or are you relying on your own self-sufficiency? Are you relying on your ability to, to keep the law that he came to, to give you grace instead of, to fulfill, to give you greater grace? In that sense, grace upon grace, grace upon the grace of the law, greater grace. I think that's what they're trying to grapple with in the ESV. He himself reveals the mercy and grace and love and forgiveness of God. God, God's glory was displayed in all the signs and wonders that tested who he was. In his death and resurrection too, what do we see? He says, we, we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten son. Where do we behold Christ's glory the most? Where do we behold his grace the most, his truth the most? Well, we see that on the cross. He is high and lifted up and, and it says that he might be glorified in his death. Why? Because we see the truth of God's mercy. That's God's glory revealed. He came to make known the glory of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God held up on the cross. This God-man who came to die, this miracle, the incarnation, 
reveals the grace of God, the glory of God, not only in his, in his life, but in his death. And he's lifted up, and he, his, he's glorified. He says, he, he says that I may be glorified and lifted up. How is the cross this instrument of torture? How is that glorification? Well, it is the place where God's grace is revealed the most. His forgiveness, his mercy, his compassion, his richness in love, slowness to anger, and forgiving even those who crucify him. And by the way, for all of our sins, he was crucified. It was my sins that nailed him there. Grace and truth are revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate self-disclosure of God, this miracle of God-man. And he wants to be seen and known in his son. So the question for all of us as we close is, do we see Jesus for who he is? Do you come to him? Do you see him as your creator? Do you, do you look to him to sustain you, to keep you? Do you see that he is strong and able? Do you come to him in faith? Do you, do you marvel at his incarnation? Do you see that he can relate to us in every way? Do you, do you look to him for help in overcoming sin, knowing that he can enable you to overcome sin because he himself has done so? Do we see him as the ultimate truth? Do we look for him to light our way, to bring us light when we're unclear, when we, we're in darkness and surrounded by darkness? Do we see that he is our light in life? Do we seek him as that? Do we say, Lord, illumine my dark mind. Lord, bring new life where I feel dead. Do we see Jesus came to fulfill the law, give us new covenant of grace in his place? Do we see the place where he is most glorified, where he revealed himself, his grace the fullest? Do we believe in him? Do we know we're children of God? If so, do you live in wonder of this truth every day? Or is John 1... Is it just, well, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God? God's given us a regular means to remember Him, to pry these truths for hearts. There is, if I can ask the ushers to go ahead and, and come forward and the band to come up too, that'd be great. Um, we're going to have some application right now. We're going we're gonna to apply this and, and call to remembrance who this God man is, this Jesus made flesh, the incarnation, the. Uh, the Jesus, the eternal God becoming flesh for us to take our place, to live a righteous, holy life. We get to celebrate and remember the, the gift that he gave us in, in, in giving us communion with him. And what we do when we experience and receive, you can go ahead and come forward, ushers, and begin passing out the, the bread and the juice. And if you have placed your faith, if you believed in Jesus Christ, we would encourage you and invite you to partake together with us in this remembrance. And if you just hold on to the, the, the bread and the, and the cup, and we're gonna go ahead and take it together in a moment. Actually, if, once you receive it, if you wouldn't mind standing for a moment, that'd be good, please. Go ahead and stand once you receive the bread and the juice. That way we know you've received it, and then we will partake together. And, and as you stand, let that be a declaration in your standing. Let that be a declaration of your hope for strength, your hope for life is in his flesh, in his blood, and the fact that he came as the God-man to take your place. He came to live a perfect life. He came to die your death. He came to bring a new covenant of grace. And if you're not able to stand, please don't feel any condemnation for that, by the way. Um, you, you're standing inside, and that's, we want to encourage that. So, but, but place your faith. We are placing our faith in the God, man. We are celebrating and doing this in remembrance of him who we just looked at. Remember. Maybe you here are challenged. And you can go ahead and play. It would be great, Danny. Thank you. It's always helpful. Danny's a great addition to 
to our church and the gifts that God's given. If, if you are here and you are lacking faith, I want you, and you've placed your faith in Jesus, I want you to, to remember who God is. He's the creator. Remember that he's come. Remember that he gives light life. Remember that he is the revelation of God's grace, that he has taken our place, that he has replaced the law so you no longer have to keep the law because he's kept it for you. Remember who he is, this eternal word of God. Remember that he came so you might be made children of God and all the rights and privileges that that means. I want you to remember that. And so today, as we, as we look on this, this piece of unleavened gluten-free bread, nothing mystical about it, but it, 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 it signifies something magnificent, miraculous, that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen, we have seen his glory. This isn't some myth that we believe in. This is historical truth that, that hundreds of people witnessed who Jesus is. So now I want us to actively place our faith in Jesus become flesh as we take this bread together. So let's take it, please. As we consider this juice, it's a symbol of something. It's a symbol of blood. That might seem gross, right? If you're not a Christian... What in the world? You guys are drink, symbolically drinking blood? What kind of religion is that? The Romans thought that of the Christians too, right? What a weird religion. They're like drinking blood. Well, we're not really drinking blood. But what we drink is the symbol that points us to remember what his blood, his death has accomplished for us. What, his, what was required to buy our freedom and what did buy our freedom. So we point to that as a trophy and say his blood has brought us freedom and new life. He is the light of life. See, blood is a symbol of life. And so he gave us blood. And we remember these, he's given us life. He's given us new life. And he's given us not, not just life, but he's given us grace upon grace. Grace instead of grace. Grace, not that our own ability to keep the law, but grace that his blood has washed away all of our pathetic law keeping and failure to keep the law. His blood paid the penalty for all of our sins. And so now we receive grace through what he did on the cross as he shed his blood. That's what we're remembering as we drink this juice. Let's drink the juice together in remembrance of him. In a moment, I want to sing that song, Christ Alone, Cornerstone. Maybe you don't feel like singing that. I want to ask you to sing it in a declaration of faith to him and asking him to be your cornerstone. Maybe you're not responding to God yet. Um, you can do that right now. It's nothing mystical. You just look to God and say, God, would you forgive me? I've tried to live life on my own. You're my creator. I have a responsibility to you. I Forgive me, Lord. I repent. I want to change and, and turn away from serving myself to serving you. And, and Lord, would you, would you take me as your child? Would you make me born anew? then may Christ alone be all of our cornerstone. May we see that this is the Jesus we serve. He is our cornerstone in whom our hope is found. Amen? Let's sing. Oh.
Uh, pass your cups to the left, if you will, for the ushers to go ahead and pick up, and they'll pick them up in the house.